0: It's my joy to continue on in our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark called Christ the King, seeing Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And as we begin by looking at Mark chapter three, I want to share about uh, a German folklore that came to popular kind of popularity in American culture about 10 years ago. And um, there's a German story of a woman named Brumhilda. I love that name. And it was popularized in American culture by a movie called uh, Django Unchained. And so in this movie, Django is a slave who has been cruelly and intentionally separated from his wife. And at the beginning of the movie, he is freed by a German bounty hunter. And then he sets off on a quest of vengeance and of rescue. Vengeance against those who enslaved him and tortured him and a rescue uh, to rescue his wife and bring her into safety. And so there's this pivotal moment in the movie where Django is just learning what it's like to be a free man. He's just learning what it's like to not be a slave. And he's eating dinner with this German bounty hunter. And the German bounty hunter asks Django and says, what's your wife's name? And Django says, "Drunhilda." Well, all of a sudden, this German stops eating, played by Christoph Waltz, an incredible actor. He says, do you know, do you know the story of Broomhilda? And Django says, no, I don't, tell it to me. And so Christoph Waltz's character, a bounty hunter, around in in, in the dark, around a, a very dramatic fire, sets his plate down and begins to tell the story of Brumhilda and he says that Brumhilda was the daughter of the most powerful God in the universe and that she had made her father angry and that he had placed her at the top of a mountain. And he says that it is this very tall, hard to climb mountain, and it was guarded by a dragon. And then she was encircled by hellfire. And there she stayed at the top of this mountain as punishment for her sins. And then we see the, the amazing victorious character, you know, the protagonist in the story, a man named Siegfried comes in and Siegfried comes in. And this is what the bounty hunter tells Django. He says, Siegfried scaled the mountain because he wasn't afraid. And then he says, Siegfried fought and defeated the dragon because he wasn't afraid. And then it says he passed through the hellfire because he wasn't afraid. And he rescues Brumhilda. And of course, in this moment, this is a pivotal moment in the story for Django as he's coming out of being a slave and then after this point he fully adopts himself kind of takes ownership of the story of siegfried as the bold protagonist as the as the avenger as the savior in the story and goes on to save his wife and at the root of all the stories both of Django and of broom and many other folklores is the question who is going to be the savior who is going to do saving and so we see this in all different types of popular culture we see this in ancient mythology. We even see this in video games right like I was thinking about this in Super Mario Brothers right like uh, Princess Peach is in a castle and she is is uh, enslaved by Bowser and so you have to operate a character Mario who goes and saves her from the evil turtle. Right. So you get this idea of throughout all different veins, both of seriousness and lightheartedness. There's always we're always looking for who's the savior and the best stories are the ones that introduce a savior. And what we see typically in the introduction of that savior is this is a brave warrior comes into the story. And at first they have to overcome their own internal fear, their own character defects and their own oppositions. And then they have to overcome all the external oppositions, and they break in, and they defeat the captor, and they rescue the vulnerable, and they lead them to safety. And so often, I think that us as Christians miss this beautiful story being fully seen in Jesus. I think that we see Jesus as, many times we see him as saving us from our sins, But so often I think that guilt and shame or fear prevents us from truly seeing Jesus, not just as saving us from our sins, kind of on a global scale, but also saving us personally and individually in our day-to-day life. So that's what I want us to think about today, is that we want to see Jesus as our unique Savior. He saves us, yes, He saves us eternally, but He's also saving us personally, and He's inviting us into a new family of God. So first, when we get to to the book of Mark, in this part of the book of Mark, we start to see that people are beginning to reject Jesus. So look with me at Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he's possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So we see already just three chapters in the shortest gospel of the four gospels in Mark. We see that everybody has theories about Jesus, and what a theory is is trying to make sense of data, right? So they're getting this data in of he's healing people, he's he's. There's people talking about he might be the son of God. There's people talking about seeing him do these incredible miracles. He's he's operating in power. And so some theories arise about Jesus. And we're going to see that two theories arise back then. I'm going to introduce to us a modern theory about who Jesus is. And then we're going to look at what the truth of who Jesus is. So there's really four solutions when you look at at who is jesus and this is based on um it's called uh, c.s lewis uh, who is a great apologist and christian writer he has something called the trilemma but i actually added another one in so this is like a quad lemma i guess that would it be but it's it's there's four different approaches to who jesus is he's either a lunatic he's a liar he's a legend or he's lord so we're going to see the first two in the text here first his family his family says that Jesus isn't God. He's a lunatic. There's just no other way to get around it in this text. His own family is hearing about all of the things that he's doing. He's stepping into his role as a rabbi. He is um, calling people to follow him. He's healing them. He's exercising demons. And, and, and they just, they, they think that Jesus has something wrong with him. They think he's crazy. And they're trying to seize him, which literally means to take into custody. It's a very harsh term. It means to forcibly imprison or forcibly restrain someone. So so they're literally trying to put him in the loony bin because they think he's a lunatic. So that's what we see his family are thinking. And then next, the very next verse, we see that, that the scribes are saying that Jesus isn't God, he's a liar. Now the scribes were like professional students of the Old Testament Jewish law. And so the scribes are coming in and they're saying, hey, wait a minute, he's just lying about this. He's lying and this claim as to being God. And they are literally traveling from Jerusalem to confront Jesus. And what they said, instead of saying that he's just lying about being God, they're actually ascribing his work to Satan himself. That's Beelzebub. Um, that's another word for Satan. And so they am literally saying that Jesus is possessed by Satan and casting out demons in the name of Satan instead of the name of of God, which, which wouldn't make a lot of sense. So they think that Jesus is a liar and they're attributing his work to Satan. Now I would say in the modern world, most people do not hold these two views of Jesus, because I think it's pretty easy to see that he's not a lunatic. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more breaking down why he's not a lunatic or a liar here in a minute, but I think it's pretty easy to see that if he was a lunatic, this wouldn't have lasted for thousands of years across billions of people in every culture of the world, pretty much, excepting uh, there's a pocket of people that are Christians who accept Jesus as, as Lord and Savior. Um, I, I think it's, it's hard to see that he's a liar because it would have come out by now. And, and we're going to see some, uh, some other evidence about that. But most modern people say that Jesus isn't God. He's just a legend. He's actually just a good person who's been legendized by people wanting power and control. So essentially the, the narrative is is that that you know there's a there's a jesus is the tool he's an idea he maybe was a person he died a tragic death but he's like gandhi he's like mother teresa um, he was just a really kind guy who loved people and then hundreds of years later people that didn't know him wrote about him compiled this book together as a tool to gain power over women to gain power over the poor to gain power over uneducated people and to gain power literally um, over empires and kingdoms. And, and so Jesus is really just legendized, this, this idea that Jesus is just a legend. And this is really a modern, it's very modern thing, just in the past maybe 150 years. Up until this point, it's been kind of almost universally accepted that, that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. And you'd have to wrestle with one of those things. It's almost no one, no historian worth their salt claims that Jesus wasn't a real person. He was clearly a real person. We have extra biblical evidence that he was a real person that lived in the first century. Um, there's this sudden upheaval of the entire known world. Um, there's a new religion that started following him. So it's, it's very hard to say that Jesus wasn't a real person. But most modern people, like I said, this is kind of a way to get around the lunatic or liar. To say he was just a little legend so um, I, I want to directly address that specifically now before we move on and then i'll give kind of a summary of of who jesus is but there's two reasons why this just can't be true um, and i'll give you the two reasons and then briefly explain it this is based on c.s lewis as well as uh, Tim a tim keller sermon that was helpful in processing this but essentially the two reasons are it was written too early And the content is too counterproductive for this to just simply be a legend. Um, Written too early. If you want to legendize someone, you have to wait till they're dead and everybody that knew them was dead. Because no one can live up to the legend, right? That's kind of the idea, is that you have to legendize someone because they weren't actually that, that thing that you're claiming them to be. And you need to make sure that no one who knew them is still alive to refute it because they could refute it very easily. But here's the thing. We see in the writings of Paul that he's literally in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he says, hey, look, there was 500 people he appeared to after he rose from the dead, and some of them are still alive. Like you can go talk to them. You should go talk to them and see what they saw. And so we see from very early on, um, people are writing so close to the time of Jesus, and there's so many different accounts of his life, so many different letters and fragments of letters, and a belief set that spread almost uniformly across the known world, that if it was false, it would have been easily refuted by the people who were alive. And we even see the book of Luke. The Gospel of Luke and the, the book of Acts, um, the author Luke compiles firsthand evidence that gives very specific details that were not normally included in legends. Because these specific details could open you up to then being criticized, right? Um, why did it say that Jesus was sleeping on a pillow? Why did it say that Jesus went here at this time in this way? There's two specific details, and it was written too early when people were still alive, for it to just be legendized, right? And then secondly, the content of the Bible, especially the New Testament, is too counterproductive for it to be used as a mechanism of control. First, we see this by the fact that it values women, especially when you talk about how Jesus values and empowers women in the Bible. That would have been repulsive to a first and second century person reading these things. Um, a modern person, women weren't even allowed to testify in court. Their firsthand eyewitnesses was not considered reliable enough to be in court because women were not considered to be on the same intellectual level as men. And so when Jesus resurrects from the dead, it says his male disciples were hiding out of fear of the Jews, but the women, faithful women, were brave enough to go to the tomb of Jesus to take care of his body. He meets them and tells them to go back to the male disciples and tell them the truth that he has risen. Now, if you are a first century person and you're trying to convince someone to follow your stated belief in order to somehow exert power or control over them, you would never have done this because this would be entirely counterproductive. It would have been repulsive to most modern men to think that a woman would be more faithful than a man, and a woman would have been able to see the risen Jesus first before a male would. And we see this over and over and over again in the ethic of women in the Bible. It's very counterproductive. Secondly, this idea of enduring sacrifice. It says, well, as Jesus was persecuted, so you will be persecuted. This is never how most people that claim to be God that have little religious cults or sects that follow them, um, because people claim to be God all the time. But they don't sell it on saying, Oh, yeah, when you follow me, it's going to get really hard and you might die. Um, Even people that are like part of suicidal cults, say that there's like this euphoria that you have and you get to be a part of here. But really, the Bible says if if it's written as a mechanism of control, they wouldn't say, oh, when you follow Jesus, you're going to have to give up everything probably. And it might get really, really hard and you might die. And then we see, finally, just one of many other reasons why it's counterproductive is that every disciple writing the gospel looks bad and every person that writes the Bible dies for it in a horrific way, except the apostle John. And so we see that like, the disciples, if they're leaders in the early church, and you're writing this narrative to as a mechanism of control, you would not take the key leaders in the early church and make them look bad in the Bible. And we're going to see in this very text that Jesus's own brothers rejected him, said he was crazy. And yet his half-brother James leads the entire Jerusalem church and dies a martyr's death believing that his half-brother was ultimately the Messiah. So we see that his own family is written about negatively in the Bible. And key first century leaders, all of them, are not looked favorably by the story here. So again, it doesn't make sense if this is a mechanism of control to make the early church leaders look so bad as they did. It would have been an off-putting thing, not an inviting thing. This idea that it's just a legend also doesn't make sense either. So in the first century, they think that he's a lunatic or he's a liar. In the modern world, we think he's a legend. So what are these three views actually doing? All three of them are doing something. See, all three of these views are rejecting Jesus as God and rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. So this is a very interesting overlap of theology here, because Jesus's incarnation as God was from the work of the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit was working to incarnate Jesus into the world as both fully man and fully God. Look with me at Luke 1, starting in verses 34 to 35. This is Mary talking to the angel who's pronouncing to her that she is going to be with child and she's going to be a virgin but she's going to bear the savior of the world. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. So remember, the family said, Jesus isn't God, he's a lunatic. The scribes say, Jesus isn't God, he's a liar. Modern people say Jesus isn't God, he's just a good person with a legend. But the gospel says Jesus is the Lord God, incarnated from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. Now you see, this is a miracle. If this is true, he has to be God. And if this is true, that means he's 100% man. He is the son of Mary. But he's also 100% God, he is completely God, the son of God through the Holy Spirit impregnating Mary. And so we see that Jesus is God. If we look at the Bible, Jesus is God coming into the world by God's Spirit as God the Father's Son, that Jesus is ultimately Lord. He is God. He is Savior. That's the the fourth option that we come to, the fourth perspective on Jesus, and it's through the Holy Spirit. So a rejection of Jesus as God is a rejection of the Holy Spirit's work In the incarnation of God. And this is very important because it's going to come into play in a few minutes with another text um, further down below. So a summary of these perspectives on Jesus. There's four, four ways we can approach Jesus. Jesus is a delusional person argument. He was too far gone. It says that Jesus is a lunatic claiming to be God. And this just doesn't make sense. Because many people have claimed to be God in this world, both anciently all the way up to modern times. But a lunatic can't get sober-minded, devoted religious Jews and Romans and Greeks to all reject their inherited sacrificial system, their inherited religious systems, which have personally benefited them for thousands of years to embrace Jesus as God to the point of being killed over it. You see, a lunatic claiming to be God can't start a movement that goes for 2,000 years. A lunatic claiming to be God can't sustain this over a long period of time. Now, I'm not saying that, um, uh, that other religions haven't tried this, but what I'm saying is claiming to be God is a very unique claim that most other religions don't have. And the only people that truly claim to be God are quickly proven to be lunatics. So that's the Jesus is a delusional person argument that he was gone too far. But then there's also Jesus is a bad person argument that Jesus took it too far, right? That he's a liar claiming to be God. Now, this, again, doesn't make sense because think about who's surrounding Jesus. He's got devout Jews following him. So Jews were the last group of people to think that God would become a human man. he would become incarnate they they saw him as so high above the world and so sovereign it would never have occurred to them that he would become a man and so then you have these devout jews that are living with jesus day and night for years on end and at the end of living with him and observing his life they more fervently believe that he is god now that is crazy to think about you have to think about the character that he would have to have to back up these claims would have to be so airtight for so many years. It's just impossible to believe that he was lying about this. And somehow the people that lived with him for years and years and years didn't see it. And then also his own family, we see in this text, they did reject him. But then later he resurrects from the dead and his same family members die for the belief that he was God incarnate. So again, if he took it too far, if he was a liar, it, would have, it makes more logical sense that it would come out. Now, the modern argument, Jesus is a good person argument, saying the disciples, that the authors of Scripture took it too far. Really, that they're saying that Jesus isn't the liar. The authors of the Bible are the liars claiming that he's God. But we already looked at that. It doesn't make sense because it was written too early because it could have been easily disproven and squelched out almost immediately. And it also provided no benefit to the disciples to lie about it. it It was actually written to be counterproductive at almost every part of the story. So it just wouldn't make sense. So then that leaves us with the fourth option, that Jesus is actually God argument. That maybe he's infinitely good. And he's the most mentally stable, the most logical human being that ever existed because he's the Lord of the universe. That he actually did what he said he would do, and the power of his actions proved his claims, and people devoted themselves to the one true God and Savior of the universe, even to the point of their own death. So what we see is that these rejections of Jesus as God is a rejection of the Holy Spirit's work in the incarnation of God, and that's going to come into play later. Next, we see our second point. It's our first point that people are rejecting Jesus, but then we see Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the divine rescuer. So remember, in the first century, people are trying to make sense of the data. His family thinks he's crazy. The scribes think he's the devil. Modern people think he's just a good person with a legend. But how does Jesus respond to this? Well, He responds by a series of metaphors that show he's not a lunatic, he's not a liar, he's also not a legend. In Mark 3, verse 23, it says these things. And he called them to him and said to them in parables. So Mark immediately is telling us Jesus is starting to speak in parables, metaphors. These are stories to explain who he is. And the first one is this. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So, first off, we see the analogy or the metaphor of a kingdom. And so, you think of like a country, like the United States or Great Britain or Canada or Mexico. And he essentially says, How would that kingdom work? How would that nation work if it was working against itself? Like, how would Satan's kingdom or country work? If I'm from Satan and I'm casting out demons, that that doesn't make any sense, right? And then he moves to the metaphor of this amazing metaphor of a castle. He says these words in verse 25 of Mark 3. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, this is one of the most powerful depictions of Jesus in the entire New Testament. He's talking about the analogy of a strong man's house. And I really picture this like a castle, right? And this castle has got people inside in bondage. And this country, this kingdom, this castle is ruled by a strong man. It's ruled by a bully who seeks to enslave the people inside. That's his goal. That's his role. That's his aim is to enslave the people inside. And my friends, this is a story of our world. This is the bondage of sin and death and hell and the grave. This is where we find ourselves in the world. Because God created us good, true, and beautiful. But in the garden, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and introduced brokenness into the world and introduced themselves as being slaves to sin. We see this in bondage to sin, enslaved to both our own desires and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And it's almost like we're trapped in this castle. We're trapped, we're locked away. And like any good story, then Jesus steps in as the Savior. And he says, I'm stronger than the strong man. I've come to bind the strong man and to rescue the people that are in bondage. See, every good story looks for a hero coming in to save the day. And that is Jesus. That is the story of rescue that undergirds every other beautiful story of hope is rooted in this story, this idea that Jesus is the divine warrior who came into the world in power. He bound the antagonist. He rescues his enslaved people from death, from the clutches of death. And he concludes their story in victory and safety. This is Jesus bringing in a new kingdom into the kingdom of darkness. This is Jesus bringing light into darkness. This is Jesus bringing salvation and freedom where there was bondage and slavery. And he's exerting this power over Satan. We see this over and over again as he gets power over the forces of darkness. And he continues to save individuals from the clutches of Satan pointing towards his ultimate victory where he would save the world from the clutches of Satan. This is a beautiful narrative. This is an incredible metaphor of Jesus walking into Satan's house, binding him up, saving his enslaved people and leading them into victory and safety. Now what's so interesting, and we will get into this later on in the book of Mark, is that later on in this book, At the end of Jesus' life, this mighty warrior is the one who is bound up at the end. He's the one who's enslaved. He's the one who's put into chains. He's the one whose life is plundered. So, how can this be? It's because before Jesus can save us out of the bondage of evil, he must save us from our own evil. Before he can break into the household, the castle, and bind up Satan and bring us out, he actually has to save us from the evil that's inside of us that's keeping us in the castle in the first place. You see, Jesus is powerful enough to save us through weakness as our substitute. And so if Jesus were to just come in and start destroying evil, he would also have to destroy us. Because the Bible says that we, as a result of the fall, now have evil residing within us. And so he can't start there. What he has to start doing is he has to to destroy evil without destroying us. Which means that he first takes our place as our substitute. To save us from our own evil, and then he breaks into the, the castle, binds up Satan, and then saves us out of evil, but he first has to be our substitute before he can be our victory. You see, Jesus is a Lord and God, and he's binding Satan, and he's setting the stage throughout the book of Mark to ultimately defeat Satan in order to save his enslaved people as the victorious divine rescuer who does not just rescue us but substitutes himself for us. Jesus is our divine rescuer and our substitute. And then we see that Jesus then invites us into a new family of God. Jesus invites us into a family that accepts him as Lord and as God. And the next passage that we're about ready to read, it, uh, it un- it's, an unnecessary, it's an unnecessary focus in, in Mark chapter three. That's why I'm not gonna focus on it too much. And it freaks people out unnecessarily. And you'll see why in a second, but it's actually a very clear, easy, logical explanation um, for what Jesus then says here in Mark chapter three. So look with me at, at verses 28 to 30. He says these words, truly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven, children of man. And whoever blasphemes, they utter. And whatever blasphemies, they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So, most people think this is some sort of secret sin. They try to unlock what is the blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And if you commit it, then you'll be eternally damned. We have to figure out what that is. It's it's actually very clear. It's not mysterious at all. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is rejecting Jesus as Lord and God. Because they literally said, it says right here, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And so if Jesus has an unclean spirit, he can't be God. They're rejecting him as God. You see why? Here's here's why the Holy Spirit comes into play here. Because the most foundational work of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus known to us. The most foundational work of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus known to us. You see, the Holy Spirit made Jesus known to us through enabling the incarnation of Jesus as fully God and fully man by impregnating Mary. That's what he did in Luke 1. That was his work. to to make Jesus known to us in the past by enabling the incarnation of Jesus as fully God and fully man. And currently, the work of the Holy Spirit now today is that he makes Jesus known to us through leading us to believe in Jesus as our God and Savior and Lord. And we see this very intentional way the Holy Spirit works explicitly stated in John 14, 15, and 16. So what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is looking at the saving work of Christ, which is enabled and revealed by the Holy Spirit, and denying that it's God's work. It's looking at the saving work of Christ enabled and revealed by the Holy Spirit and denying that it's God's work. This is the sin of unbelief. And so we see Jesus' family does it by calling him a lunatic. The scribes do it by calling him a liar. And modern people do it by just referring to him as a legend, not really seeing him as God himself. And why can't that be forgiven? Because what it is, it's a rejection of Jesus's salvation for us. It's saying, I don't want it, I don't need it. It's actually us saying, I don't want God as my Lord and Savior. So that's why he's not going to save you unless you come to him in weakness and willingly accept him as your Savior. But here's the beauty of it, and this is where we move on in the text. When we do accept Jesus as a Lord, when we accept him as God, this um, explains and opens up an opportunity for a new family. And Jesus explains this in Mark 3, verse 31 and following. It says, And his mother and brothers came. Standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So he goes around and says, here are my mother and sisters and brothers. Now remember what we saw at the beginning of this text, that Jesus' family is rejecting him as God right now. They thought he was crazy. And they've shown up to take him away to the loony bin. They're circling back to what they said they were going to do. They want to seize him, to bind him, to forcibly imprison him. And Jesus has something to say about that. He says there's a new family of God. He pulls back. He, He pulls out of this immediate family conflict. And he says, hey, guys, there is a new family of God being formed here. And it's a family in the foundation of those who accept the work of the Holy Spirit, those who accept Jesus as God. And this is the real family. And again, just thinking if, if this was a modern kind of invention, uh, the modern view of Jesus as just a good person who was legendized, this would, this would make no sense for somebody to write this, especially in the first and second, third century Eastern culture that values the family over the individual, that values the family above anything else, and saying that, hey, even if your family rejects you, you have a new family in Christ. This would have been so mind-blowing to the people reading it and very difficult for them to accept. But you see, what we're seeing here is those who do the will of God, which is to believe in Jesus as Lord, right? Those people are doing the opposite of blasphemy. To to blaspheme is to desecrate or to make unholy. But what they're doing is they're sanctifying or they're being sanctified. That is to to give reverence to or to acknowledge as holy. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is looking at the saving work of Christ, enabled and revealed by the Holy Spirit, and denying that it's God's work. But being sanctified by the Holy Spirit is looking at the saving work of Christ, enabled and revealed by the Holy Spirit and accepting that it's God's work for you. That's what that means. That's what it means to do the will of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. And it's not just this idea of easy believism either. You have to do three things to make sure this is genuine. You have to hear this message. You have to believe that it's true for you, that you actually have a need for a Savior. That you need a true Savior. And then you have to obey by making Jesus Lord and Savior over your life. And then what you do is you follow it up with baptism, and you follow it up with a lifetime of obedience following Jesus. That shows the evidence that your faith is real. And this is what unites our family of faith here at Redeeming Hope. You see, we're a new family of God, unified around looking at the saving work of Jesus the Christ, We see that it is enabled and revealed by the Holy Spirit, and we're accepting that it's God's work for us. That's what makes you a Christian. And then we evidence this belief by a new life. So it's rooted in a conversion experience. That's why I talk about a stake in the ground. It's rooted by a moment where you put a stake in the ground, you convert, and you say, I make Jesus Lord and King over my life. I acknowledge that he is who he says he is. Then it's confirmed through baptism. Then you follow Jesus in baptism, which by the way, we're going to be doing baptisms here at Redeeming Hope soon. And this idea of being confirmed, you're taking a step of obedience to go public with your faith. And then it's continued through obedience and continual repentance and faith, turning away from sin and turning towards Christ for a lifetime. And when you come into a community, that believes these things, it is life transforming and reorienting. It reorients your whole life. It reorients you around new friends. Like your friendships are deeper and more meaningful because they're centered on an abiding faith in Christ that Jesus is Lord and God. That's what you're saying. And then not only that, But it gives you a new perspective on the opposite sex. It gives you a new perspective on people um, of the opposite sex within our church family. Because what you're saying is that these are my brothers. These are my sisters. These are my my children. You You look at other people differently when you're in a family of faith. And it's so much better to look. It's actually so much more affirming for marriage. It's so much more safe for your marriage when you can look at people of the opposite sex and this is my brother, this is my sister, man, this is like, I see this person like a spiritual son or a spiritual daughter in my eyes. And then that just preserves the sanctity of marriage. It preserves fidelity of marriage. So you can be close, intimate friends with other people in our church that are members of the opposite sex without risking a threat to your marriage. Because you're seeing them as brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. And then this also gives you a new value for your family life. Because your family is supposed to be a microcosm of the kingdom of God. Which means that your family is supposed to reflect the leadership of King Jesus over your life. That means husbands, you're supposed to speak graciously to your wife and sacrificially serve her and sacrificially serve your children. This means that children, you're supposed to be obedient to your parents. That means you're coming underneath their loving authority as they're caring for your soul and leading you to King Jesus and seeing Jesus as Lord. And then just as we all submit under Jesus as Lord, that means that the wife and the children then submit under godly, loving, careful leadership as a model of what we're all supposed to be doing underneath King Jesus. And then this also gives a new value for singleness in the church. This means that if you're single, you're not just here to live your own life for yourself, to just seek immediate gratification for yourself. But this actually means that you're constrained by love for the fellow people in your church, that your brothers and sisters in the church. This means that this gives your life value and meaning within the context of a broader family of faith, that you don't have to be married to be a whole person within God's family. But rather, you can be a part of God's family as a single person or as a family unit. We see that Jesus invites us into a new family of God. Now, this is the conclusion that we're coming to today. I want to invite you into this new family of God. If you're you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you can believe that Jesus is God. You can reject that he's a liar. You can reject that he's a lunatic. You can reject that he's a legend. But he is God for you. And you hear this message, you believe that you need a Savior. And then you obey by making Jesus Lord over your life. You do the will of God, which is to believe in Jesus and make him Lord over your life. And then you follow him in obedience and baptism. I, I want to invite you to do that today. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, This means that you can fully embrace this new family and you can invite others to do the same. Don't reject community. Be engaged with it. Come into this church as a family. See this church as your family. See your your fellow church members as brothers and sisters and spiritual sons and spiritual daughters, loving and caring for them as you would a sibling or a child. And then invite others to join the family. When you have a healthy family, you want other people to be around that healthy family, don't you? And so you can invite others to do the same. Now there's this beautiful passage as we conclude our time from 1 John 5. It says these words. It says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. My friends, when you are a follower of Jesus, when you acknowledge him as Lord and King and the heroic divine Savior who has bound up Satan, who has rescued you from this castle of darkness, who's brought you out into victory, then Satan can no longer touch you. Disappointment can no longer touch you that you can experience deep disappointment, pain, and struggle in this world, but it does not have to shake who you are because who you are is rooted in who Jesus is. And Jesus is the Lord and King of the universe who has saved you and is saving you and one day will ultimately save you from death, hell, and the grave. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you have a good week.